Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 42. This is written to the choir master. It's a masculine, a type of song of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng, that's a great crowd of people, and lead them into the presence of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude, many, many people, keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where's your God now? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Zindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Today, as we continue in this series in the Psalms, which are songs for the church, prayers of worship and work and witness, we're looking today at hopeful tears from Psalm 42 and 43. Reminds me of a blues song when we read this, this psalm, this, this pair of psalms. And across the street, we have a world-famous blues guitarist. You guys ever met him before? I've talked about him a few times, Johnny Twist. Right across the street, the Mississippi Blues Museum. He's famous, actually. Look him up on YouTube, if you don't believe me. Ask me sometime for some funny stories about Johnny Twist, the blues guitarist. But the blues, there's nothing really funny about the blues. Well, there kind of is when you hear some of the lyrics to some of the songs. You know how some of the blues songs start, right? Some of them start with like, I woke up this morning. You know, a lot of them start like that. So here's one that I wrote this morning when I woke up. I woke up this morning on the wrong side of the bed. I couldn't find my pulse, but I wasn't quite dead. I fed Butch his dog food, and he started to choke. I'm too broke to buy coffee or even a smoke. Can't get to work because my Chevy won't crank. My wife up and left me for some guy named Hank. Sun's going down now and I'm in the county jail Cause I tracked down Hank and kicked his no good tail 
All my problems are tap dancing on my head. I wish I could go back this morning and just stay in bed. See, it's kind of funny, but it's really not funny. Because what are the blues? What are the blues? They're just songs about tragedy, when everything seems to be falling apart. When everything's breaking, your body falling apart. Your fridge is falling apart, right, Shannon? This week. Your faith is falling apart. We have a pastor in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. His name is Al Dayhoff. He lives in Virginia. I got to spend some time with him this summer at our national conference and a seminar that he uh, was leading. And he was talking about his church, which uh, he's written a book about called Church in a Blues Bar. This church actually meets in a blues bar. He started going there because he was depressed. As a pastor, after Sunday services, he went in there and just cried and was depressed and listened to blues music. And finally, people started asking him, what do you do? And he tried for the longest time not to tell them. And when he finally did, they were like, you're an imposter, you're a spy, you've been sitting here listening to us, you pastor. You know, they call him a priest, he's not really a priest. But, you know, finally, he started making friends, and he and his wife started going there and dancing at the bar. And then they started a church in the blues bar. And who comes to the church? The people that went there to drink and dance and smoke and chew and whatever else they do in the bar. And now they're bringing all their friends. Everybody's got tattoos except for the pastor. Uh, They bring all their gay friends and everybody you can imagine comes to this bar and they meet Jesus here at the church in the blues bar with my friend Al. He's not really my friend, but, you know, I I spent some time with him, so I'll just call him my friend because he's famous. And, And I think, you know what, we could write a book, couldn't we, our church? Southside Blues. I mean, this is what I think about when I think of our church a lot. We are a group of people, many of us in crisis, you know, struggling folks. You know, half the reason the chairs are empty sitting around is because people are struggling right now. And I could, I could name names. You know the folks that are struggling. That's why some of them are not here. Life is happening to them. It's breaking. It's, it's busted up. It's falling apart. And that's what the blues are about. Blues music is music about the human condition, all the trials and tribulations. And there's sometimes hope, though, in these songs, just like we see today in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. This is really the psalmist blues song. It's it's a lament. It's a sad song. It's It's a song that's marked with tears and struggle and pain and desperation, but also with hope. It shows us how to deal with our depression. When we go through a season where we feel that God is far away from us. This is our instructor today. And our teachers are the sons of Korah. That's the title or the superscription above the psalm. This is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. And what you need to know today, which is an important link, is that the sons of Korah were temple musicians. They were the the Ans and the Elaines and the Elianas of the church of the ancient Israelites. The temple where they gathered wasn't just a place for sacrifices on the altar. It was a place where there was music and celebration and joy. And these temple musicians, these sons of Korah, were the leaders. But we have a problem. These sons of Korah who handled holy things in the temple and they were stewards of salvation through song, one of their their file cabinets had been filled with blues songs. When they went to the church office and went to the file cabinet, pulled out their songs, they had a whole file full of lament, full of sad songs about the reality of life, bitterness. And, And then this song in particular is about how some of their sweet songs have been stolen from them through the enemy. Their sweet songs have now turned bitter as they experience distance from God. They say, I'm far from you, God. It feels like you forgot me. Where are you, God? I'm not in Jerusalem at the temple anymore. I'm in another land. They're talking about these lands of the north. Hermon, that's a mountain up in the north. The land of Jordan, where the Jordan River first starts at the slopes of Mount Hermon. I'm far away in exile, probably in Babylon, and I'm not in Israel anymore. I'm not in Jerusalem. 
We have these trash-talking enemies surrounding us, these oppressors, and that's really no different than the church today. First Peter says that the Christian church is an elect group of exiles. Peter opens up his letter saying, you are elect exiles. That means you are far from home. God chose you, but the world has done what to you? Rejected you. You're elect of God and exiles in the world. You don't belong here. You live here, but your zip code's here. You, know, you get your mail here, but your, your home, your citizenship is in heaven. <clears throat> we feel far from God sometimes in this place of exile. And it's interesting that these temple musicians who were far from Jerusalem, <clears throat> they were hindered from what they were made to do. Have you ever thought about that? This is what God created these people to do, is to lead music, to lead people into the presence of God, and yet they were unable to fulfill their, their created duties, what they were called to do, trained to do, what they were good at, what they loved, they couldn't do for at least a season. Do you ever feel like that, that you're in this world, you feel like you were made for something more than this, you feel like God put a passion in your heart, this is who I was made to be, this is who God called me to be, and yet you can't quite ever get there, it's always just out of reach, far away. You, you think this isn't right, this isn't how it should be, and you, you feel down, you feel in the dumps. You hopefully can identify with this blues song from Psalm 42. But the biggest loss that the sons of Korah felt wasn't that they couldn't put their hands on their stringed instruments or sing songs of praise and lead the people in worship, or that they were in Jerusalem at the, the, the great temple. What their greatest loss was was God's own presence. You hear that throughout the refrain. Where are you? I want to see your face. If we translate it literally, God, you're my Savior, my God, really means you're my saving presence. Your face saves me. If I could see you, everything would be fine again. But I can't see you, God, my God. And that's what I'm grieving the most. That's what makes me the most blue, the most depressed. We get depressed about a lot of things. Do you ever get depressed? You don't have enough of God in your life, enough face time with God? There's three questions that these psalmists ask in this combination of Psalm 42, 43. It's a series of three questions that, that goes back and forth between lament and hope. There are four cycles. They lament and they hope. Lament and hope. Lament and hope. Back and forth. And there are three questions you can pull out. The first question is the enemies of the worshipers are taunting them and asking them, where is your God, Christian? You loser. You can just hear them say, like, insulting things. You losers. You think that this is going to get you? You think this is what's real? Christians are being mocked. The oppressor, the enemy, is mocking the worshiper. Then there's a second set of questions that come from the worshiper's heart to God. It's, it's a prayer. It's a question. It's a doubt. And the, the worshiper asks, where are you, God? They're asking in the world, where's your God? I don't feel you either. I don't see you doing what I want you to do now. Why have you rejected me, God? Why have you forgotten me, my rock, my refuge? And then the third question we'll see is the worshiper then asks himself a question. Why, self, why, soul, are you so downcast? Why are you so depressed? Hope in God again. He's my saving presence. Because let's look at these three questions one at a time from Psalm 42 and 43. First, the questions that come from the enemies of God's people, to the worshiper, this is what they're asking, where's your God, Christian? And the main feeling that the psalmist is displaying at this point in the psalm is he's feeling threatened or insulted or attacked. Anybody feel threatened, insulted, or attacked recently? You ever feel that way? The older I get, the more enemies I make. Some of you may not have any enemies. I didn't have any enemies, I thought, when I was younger. 
Satan, of course, you know. But now I've got flesh and blood enemies. Not hopefully because of anything I've done, but people just don't like you sometimes. Especially when you are trying to do the right thing, or you ask them to do the right thing, you make enemies. And sometimes these enemies threaten you, insult you, and attack you. And so when he says in chapter 42, verse 3, Psalm 42, verse 3, he says, They are saying to me all day long, Where is your God, this God of yours that you talk about? And who are the they? It's verse 10. My adversaries who are taunting me, trash-talking me. And, and then in, chapter four, in Psalm 43, verses 1 and 2, these ungodly people, deceitful people, unjust people, who are the people in your life? that have mistreated you, they have lied to you, they've done ungodly things to you, unjust things, maybe they've taken you to court, or they've used the legal system, somehow manipulating it to oppress you in some way. This man says, all day long, I'm surrounded by enemies. And it's in this land of exile. I'm, I'm not home. I'm in a foreign place. Maybe it's the Babylonians who are taunting me. And all day long, this is what they do when they see me walking down the street. Oh yeah, you're one of those singers, one of those musicians, one of those Christians, one of those Jews, and they're taunting me. Where's your temple now? We defeated your people over there in Israel, down south. And so he says, I feel I'm, I'm all alone here. I feel like you've forgotten the God I'm alone, but I'm not really alone. There's all these enemies around me. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm disconnected from you and my people. Now the fact was, people in exile were not really disconnected from their their own people, from the other Jews, they were actually, as a group, moved up north to the land of Babylon. And so we don't need to think right now, I'm alone because I don't have everything that I want. Or I'm alone because I don't feel God's presence. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that in exile we are surrounded by other brothers and sisters. That that truly our friends are more in number than our enemies. Did you know that? You know, you might have one or two enemies that really are loud. They just bark all the time in your face. But you've got to believe me when I say this. Your friends are greater than your enemies. You have a family here. Brothers and sisters here to lean on when you're feeling attacked and threatened and insulted. He says in verse 10, these enemies, though they, they get deep in my bones. He says, literally, it's like there's rot in my bones or murder in my bones. It's like I'm just dying inside killing me, bone deep, what's going on? And sometimes even your friends can't console you or comfort you. They try to speak truth to you, try to pray for you. You don't want to hear it. It hurts too deep. How can you understand? This is how this, these, these song leaders of Israel were feeling. These worship leaders being taken advantage of. No one understands. Not even God understands. But once again, we have to remember that those who wrote this psalm were not just lamenting, they were also reminding themselves of what hope was left, what faith they could hold on to, and what the promise was to come of what God would do. And they maintained hope, and we need to as well. We can't just lose sight of hope and say, well, I'm going to focus on the lament part and not the hope part. We have to remember that even when our enemies surround us, we're not alone. Romans 8, one of the great chapters of the Bible, says this, The Holy Spirit knows what you're going through. He sees all your pain, all the depression. He hears your your singing, your blues, your lament, and He groans with you in prayer. He prays for you. The Holy Spirit of God groans with you. When He hears you singing that off-key A7 major chord in your blues song, He sings with you. He's in your life. God Himself in your life, indwelling you. And then it says in Romans 8 that Jesus intercedes for you. Jesus, the man of sorrows, 
knows all your pain and says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Romans 8 says, no matter if even people are coming against you to kill you, we are more than conquerors. We we will not be separated from the love of God in Christ. This is the hope that sustains the, the man or woman who says, God, even you've forgotten me. Look at all the enemies I have. And what they're saying to me. The second question that they ask is this. The worst for asking God now. God, when will I see you? Verse 2. When will I see your face? Literally. I don't see it now. I haven't seen it for a long time. When are you going to show me yourself, God? And then in verse 9. Why have you forgotten me? And then in in Psalm 43, verse 2. Why have you rejected me, my God? The feelings here that the psalmist is expressing are being forsaken and being forgotten. Forsaken means you've been left behind. You know, just distance. God has no memory of you anymore, is what he's feeling. Have you forgotten that I exist? You made me. Where are you? When will I see you again? And he says in the first few verses of our our psalm here, I am so thirsty for you, God. I feel like my, my, my soul is empty like an empty stomach, like a dry mouth. When you have that dry mouth syndrome, and you just, you're so thirsty. You're like a deer panting for water that's been running through the woods from the hunters or the dogs chasing it. You're just out of breath, out of life. You are going to die if you don't get some water. And he says, I'm so thirsty like that deer. I can't survive without you, God. All I have to drink is my tears. He says, my food has been my tears day and night. I'm just pouring streams. I'm dehydrated from crying. That's all I've got to drink is tears. What an appropriate beverage for a blues bar, right? Tears. Like Garth Brooks said, right? There's a tear in my beer because I'm crying for you, dear, right? Some of you don't know who Garth Brooks is. That's okay. You know, they, they, they serve cheap wine. They serve old coffee that's been sitting on the burner for like 12 hours. And they, they serve tears. That's what Blues Bar specializes in. This is what these men are experiencing. I have nothing left to drink but tears. That's all I've got. This is intense. This is how some of you have felt or may be feeling right now. You know what Jesus says to those who are so dry and so thirsty? And they know that that thirst must lead them to God. They know that they, they're saying, I'm thirsty for you, oh God. They're not saying I'm thirsty for some other quick fix. They're saying, I'm thirsty for you and I won't be satisfied till I get more of you. This is what Jesus says to people who thirst and hunger like that. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, you're blessed. Blessed is the one who hungers with a non-feeling in their soul and thirsts like a parched sensation in their heart for righteousness, for more of God. You know, it's pretty obvious if I say this, but you're thirsty when you have nothing to drink, right? But there's a good thirst that Scripture talks about. You must be thirsty for God. So when God is far from you and you feel like He's not in my life, that can be a good thing if it leads you to say, oh wait, self, I'm thirsty. What should I do when I'm thirsty? Go get me some more of God. Now if you say, I'm, I'm thirsty, now what should I do? I should go get some of the world and satisfy my thirst like that, then... Not a good thirst, obviously. But when, when you recognize that God's seemingly absent and you call out to Him and draw near to Him for more of Him, that's the state that Jesus calls the blessed life. That's a good place. Have you ever thought of your tears as a blessing? 
The fact that you can still cry and pray and think and ask God questions like, God, where are you now? You're still talking to God. There's still a connection, a communication, a relationship there. He truly hasn't abandoned you. The tears are a sign of grace. And, and this psalmist is experiencing the tears, though. That's, that's the main feeling overwhelming him right now. And he's experienced this, this waterfall-type, wave-crashing-into-him-type uh, disorientation that he describes in Psalm 42.7. Deep calls to deep. That's the word that Genesis says is like the chaos of the, the, the darkness before the world was created. Chaos. Deep things just churning in my soul. Just, I don't... I can't tell which way is up or down. I'm trying to get to the surface to get some oxygen, and I'm actually, I think I'm swimming down deeper in the ocean right now. This is the chaos. The, the crashing waves and the waterfalls coming from Mount Hermon down, I just feel disoriented, confused, drowning. Like the people of Houston, just under record waterfall that our country's never seen waterfall this deep before. And, and they're, they're stranded, they're struggling, they're, they're confused, they're crying out for help. And that's what the psalmist is experiencing, a hurricane-type disaster in his life. And he says, that deer's panting for living waters, flowing stream, something like the psalmist would describe in Psalm 23 as still water, where I can go and find peace. All I'm getting is the waterfalls crashing down upon my head, and it's confusing me, pounding me, threatening me. But did you ever notice in verse 7, something, just a gem here, he says, these waves as they break over and crash and crush on top of me. He says, these are your breakers and your waves. He recognizes that this is God's world. Even the chaos and the trouble is under God's control. The trials that are beating me down are still your work in my life. The waves that are crashing over me and I'm saying, please take them away, that's your way of waking me up perhaps. Getting me to turn back to you. Getting me to thirst for you more. That you're still in control is a huge sliver of faith. It's a huge sliver of faith. Even if it's just a tiny string that he's hanging on, he's still hanging by faith that this is God's world. This is, as he says, my rock in verse 9. You know, I'm being swept away in a flood, but you are still my rock. Why have you forgotten me? You're my rock. I'm going to climb up on top of you and find solid ground, a solid rock to stand on. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. There's hope here. There's faith here. Even in the midst of the storm, he's still recognizing who God is. Another little tidbit that you might just miss over with, so I'll, I'll kind of pull this out for you, is in Psalms 42 through 72, we're now in book two of the Psalms. Book two means it's kind of like a large collection of the Psalms which have similar themes. And these Psalms in Psalms 42 to 72 are called the Elohim Psalms. Now, what does Elohim mean? Come on. God. Elohim is just the, the general name for God. Elohim. The Most High. Elohim. The Most High. It's the word most used in the Bible of who God is. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. This whole section of the Psalms from 42 to 72 is called the Elohim section of the Psalms because it usually, almost always, uses just the general word Elohim for God. But now here in verse 7, we get... I'm sorry, verse 8, we get the word Lord. In the Hebrew, it's what? Yahweh, which is the personal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. So right here, right in the middle of the psalm, we only get it one time in the psalm, and you don't see it a whole lot else in in this, this whole section. Yahweh, I'm crying out to you, my personal God. 
And what am I asking you for? That your steadfast love would continue to find me all day long. And at night when I pray to you, I remember your steadfast love. That's the chesed of God. You know, we talk about that sometimes. The chesed, it's the steadfast, faithful, covenant love of God. It's not just some generic, you know, gooey-gooey, squishy love. This is particular, life-saving, slave-redeeming, Christ-dying-on-the-cross love. And he says, Yahweh, your chesed, these belong to you. You can't say that, you know, some generic God shows chesed. Only Yahweh shows chesed love. And he says, it's like peanut butter and jelly. I call on you, my personal God, and I know that this is who you are. Your heart is to love the people that you're in relationship with, that you made a covenant with. That's, that's my hope in the middle of the storm that I still have the God of the covenant on my side. And he says something else about this in verse 9. Um, verse 8 and 9 talk about the song that God gives him and the prayer to the God of his life. This sounds like a dying man, you know. This prayer is to the God of my life. Like, I need you like life and death right now. But listen to what his prayer is. Verse 9. Here's my prayer. Why have you forgotten me? Did you catch that God gave him that prayer? This is the prayer you gave me. This is the song you gave me. The song I'm singing is the blues. You put this song in my heart. Like we saw last week, Psalm 40. I love the Lord. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit. And he gave me a new song in my mouth and in my heart. This is a, a song that God put in his heart and mouth as well. But you know what he's saying? God put a song in his heart, and the song is, Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me again? Why would God put that song in his heart? I mean, doesn't God want a happier song? Like, I'll never forget, and I'll never doubt, I'll ne- I'm always happy, smiling, clapping all the time. That's not real. God putting reality in his heart. God's saying, you want to see how it feels? When I don't feel close, I want you to feel that for a minute. So you come running back to me for true love so that you don't turn away to the world for your answers. Come back to me. I'm going to put this song in your heart. I'm going to answer that prayer. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? I'm going to answer it. I'm going to put the question there and I'm going to put the answer there. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. I mean, our God is so big that he's in charge of the waves. These are your waves and breakers. He's in charge of the pain and the blues that are in our hearts. He's in charge of the doubt. He's in charge of the questioning. He can handle it. He's a rock. He's a rock. There's a great song you should YouTube at some time from Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God. It's a very simple, quiet, haunting song. And at the end of the song, Andrew Peterson sings this. Christ is kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. And his friends are all sleeping. And he's weeping alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrows he carried by the hearts of those he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. That's kind of poetic. You should look it up so you can see it again. But let me pull this out. We have a man, Jesus, who is called the rock in the Scripture. God is our rock. This man, though, Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Praying, sweating, cold and clammy, crying to God. And on the cross, you remember what Jesus said? Why have you forsaken me, my God, my God? And there was no answer from the heavens. There was no visible sign or audible answer to that question. And this is our rock, a man who understands. We, we look at God and say, why have you forgotten me? And God says, you know what, I 
I said that. I said that when I was on the earth. Those were my words. I put that song in your heart. I put those. You're just repeating what I said. When I came down as a man into this condition of darkness and destitution, and, and you're going to ache. Life has an ache to it. It has a hurt to it. There's no, there's no uh, guarantee that you won't have problems. There's actually a, a guarantee that you will have problems in the Bible. Jesus says you will suffer trials and tribulations. You will experience persecution. But he says, you know what? You will not break forever. That's what the, the songwriter said. There's an ache that will remain, but the breaking will not. There's going to be a breaking in the clouds. The darkness will break, and you will see the light again. You'll see the face of God again. You'll see Jesus, your rock, appear and give you hope. You know, when the, the moon covered the sun last week and there was the eclipse, that just lasted for a couple minutes. There's no way the moon can hide the sun for very long. There's no way that your pain and problems and darkness will eclipse the glory and the greatness of God for very long. Can you hear me? Thank you, Cynthia. You hear what I'm saying? And I, God will not let you break forever. He will break you. I promise you, He will break your heart, but only to mend you and, and heal you. He will only put those doubts and questions in your mind so that He can answer them for you in due time. The psalmist says in verse 4 of Psalm 42, I remember, I remember the, the lands of the north, I remember that now I'm in exile, and I also remember the pilgrimages that I would take in verse 4, where I'd go to Jerusalem, singing songs, leading the con congregation in praise and joy. And I want to just focus on this memory for a minute, just for a second. When, he, when the psalmist prays to God and says, where are you? He's remembering something. This is his solution to the pain and the doubts. Memory. I remember the joy of worship. I remember the joy of meeting with your people. Now, those of you that are here today, are you still with me? You still have a pulse? You're here. This is the place where we get hope. This is the place where when we're not here, we have to remember that we were here and we need to get back here. Because when you get lonely and feel like God isn't with you anymore, He's giving you actually flesh and blood, tangible evidence that He is with you and that's the people sitting near you. That's your brothers and sisters in Christ who can tell you, I love you, and give you a hug and pray for you, and that's God's visible sign to you that He loves you. We love you too. He is reminding us every time we come to church that He remembers us. Oh, you want to remember God. That's great. But once again, don't forget, remember this, God first remembered you. You know, like the illustration for the children. The psalmist says, God keeps our tears in His bottle and He records our turnings on our bed. You know, like a hinge turns the door, sometimes we just flip-flop in the bed. We can't go to sleep. We're turning. We're restless. And He says, God remembers each... He counts your turnings. Every time you flip over and are restless in the bed, every tear that falls, He counts it. He keeps it in His bottle. This God remembers you. Will you remember that? Yes. You're not forgotten. We remember you. We pray for you. We pray for each other. You're not forgotten, brothers and sisters. People of God. God is a rock. He's, an, he's a solid place. And He gives you people in your life to help you stay on that firm footing. One of the commentators that uh, I was reading in the Psalms, who's like written this big, thick book on the Psalms, uh, he's actually in our presbytery, our group of churches here. He teaches at Covenant Seminary down in St. Louis. Shout out to St. Louis for you, Avery. And um, his name is William Van Gemeren. Uh, so you know, I've got to spend some time with him in some committees examining other pastors. I usually let him ask the hard questions, I'll, I'll give him some softballs, but William Van Gemmer, brilliant scholar of the Psalms, and he says this, I love this line, he says, 
Adverse conditions create an optimum context for reflection. Okay? Let me say that again. Adverse conditions create an optimum context for reflection. Okay, what that means is bad stuff makes you think deeply, okay? <laughs> bad stuff makes you think deeply. Okay? You're not going to think deeply when everything's fine and you're having fun at Six Flags or at, you know, Old Country Buffet or Mar you know, Magianos or wherever you choose to go. You're just going to be happy there. But when bad stuff happens, you're going to stop and reflect. You're going to remember something. You're going to go deeper than the surface. Memory is a powerful remedy for despair. Memory is a powerful remedy for despair. Remembering doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I had that thought. Thank you so much, Lord. It means you do something about it, too. The Bible's notion of remembering is doing something. Because when you forget, you're doing something, too. You're turning away from God when you forget. So when you remember, you're turning to God. You're living in faithfulness. Memory looks back at the past and says, look how God was faithful to me. And then it remedies the present pain so that you can see with hope into the future. You look back in memory of God's goodness and you can now see forward with hope into the goodness of God's future that He's promised you. We can look back and remember there was a man that died on a cross for me, for the church. And that man rose from the dead. Now when I feel like I'm dying, when I feel like I'm being crucified, when I feel like I'm being forgotten, abandoned, taunted, threatened, attacked, I can remember that God will raise me. 2 Corinthians tells me in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, through the Apostle Paul's lips, and you know Paul, he experienced a lot of trials, a lot of adverse conditions. He sang a lot of blues. Here's what the Apostle said. We felt that we'd received the sentence of death. I felt like I was a man on death row. I felt like I was a man who was about to be condemned to die on a cross like my Savior. But that, that death sentence, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I mean, what can a condemned criminal do when he's in shackles, in the jail, about to go to the gallows or the electric chair or however it's happening? He can't rely on himself in those moments. He must rely on no one other than God. And he says, Paul says, we receive the death sentence, but so that we would have to rely on God who raises the dead. And now listen, here's the memory part. This is when he's thinking back. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, past, remembering. Think of the times God's delivered you. Now, he says, here's the hope that goes forward, He will deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Okay, now, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you're alive right now. Okay, a couple of you are raising your hands. That's concerning to me that you're not raising your hands. I'm not talking about spiritually alive. I'm talking about like physically, biologically, you're alive. That's a good sign that God has delivered you from many deadly perils in the past. You, you're living under a death sentence. This world is not your friend. There are natural disasters waiting to swallow you up. There are cars waiting to run you over. You have things going on inside your body that are waiting to take you down. But God has preserved you all this way. And if He did it back then, and if you're here right now, He's going to do it again. And even when you die, He's going to raise you up again if you believe in the resurrected Son of God, Jesus. So we remember so that we might hope in the future. And the third set of questions that this guy's asking, these worshipers are asking, the worshipers ask himself. He asks himself, self or soul, why are you downcast? Verse 5, verse 11, and then in Psalm 43, verse 5 again. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so depressed? He, he's going back and forth like a tennis ball being volleyed back over the net. 
I'm depressed, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm depressed, I'm hopeful. Four times he goes back and forth, but he keeps coming back to hope. Why are you so downcast? Hope in God, my Savior and my God. One of the great preachers of uh, Great Britain in the former century, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was a medical doctor who then became a preacher, and he understood personally and through a lot of the patients that he saw over the years, spiritual depression, as he called it. So people who were depressed would come and find help in his medical office and then eventually in his pastoral office. And he writes this in his book, Spiritual Depression. In the first chapter he writes, the problem is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of us talking to ourselves. You understand the difference? Let me tell you the difference. Most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. So all day long you're listening to the thoughts inside, Satan's putting accusations in your mind, and you're hearing what other people have told you growing up, and you're hearing what the world tells you, and you're thinking of your own uh, ideas that are all about defeat and, and your self-worth, and you're listening to that, which you need to start doing more, Lloyd-Jones says, is talking to yourself more. Okay, you're going to hear those voices in your head, they're going to come. But what you have to do is talk to those voices, talk to yourself, and say, wait a minute, here's how he says it, you have to listen for a moment to what I have to say. All right, voices, listen to what I'm going to say now, and then you start talking to yourself like this. Do you know who God is and what God has done for me and what God has promised to do for me? You have to know how to handle yourself, question yourself, and preach to yourself. You're all a preacher today. You're all preachers. You're supposed to preach to yourself the truth. Rather than simply always listening to yourself and allowing yourself to drag you down and depress you, you must take, take control and speak truth to yourself. Preach the gospel daily to yourself is how we often say it. When your soul says, hey, look at you. Who do you think you are? Down, dirty, ugly, un alone, unworthy. Nobody cares about you. These accusations that come from Satan through your own soul. You have to stop listening to that and start preaching to your soul. Soul, why are you downcast? Hope in God. He's my God. He's the truth. He's my rock. He's my refuge. Don't you remember how he's carried me in the past and he's going to carry me in the future? How can you let one or two bad episodes eclipse all the good things God's done? How can you let all that negative chatter in your ears be the dominant conversation in your head? Well, that's how psychology works. You fixate on the negative, and those are the things that always sound louder and always more dominant than the positive. I mean, you have a conversation with someone about your past, you're often going to bring up all the pain, all the problems. How was your week? Sometimes you're thinking first thing is like, well, yeah, it's a bad week. You rarely talk first about the good things. You rarely think first about the good things. But you have to start retraining your brain and your soul by faith, speaking the truth, saying to it, don't forget the good things. Let me bring those back out like a holy show and tell. Okay, let me take this little uh, souvenir from my past and bring it back. Let me call my friend from the past and say, do you remember the time that we had that great journey with the Lord? Remind me of that. Speak to me and I'm going to speak to myself about the goodness of God. I will hope in God, my Savior, my God. He says in Psalm 43, send out your light and truth. This is verse 3. Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He's asking God for clarity, light. Light brings clarity. It brings something clear into your mind. When it's confused, when it's doubting, when it's unsure, bring truth to my mind right now so that I can have clarity. And then he says, 
Then verse 4, I will have joy, exceeding joy in God. But he doesn't first pray for, help me to get over these depressed feelings and have joyful feelings. He doesn't skip the truth. He starts with the truth and says, if you give me clarity of thought and I know the truth and stand on that rock, then I'll have joy once again. First comes truth, then the feelings will follow. You see how it works? Send me light and send me truth. He's essentially praying for the Holy Spirit to come and enlighten the Word of God for him. The Holy Spirit is the light of God that when He shines upon the words of Scripture, we believe, we understand, we are strengthened. We are led home to the holy hill where, where God Himself dwells. He says, give me a flashlight, give me a compass, give me a map, or skip all that, just give me some GPS. You know? I mean, just give me an iPhone, God, and let me follow you home. What he's saying is, I need to know where I'm going. I need to be able to see clearly and believe accurately what the truth is, and then I will have pure joy, unadulterated joy, exceeding abundant joy. It's going to be joy that never dies. Give me light and truth, and let them lead me home. Home is where again? It's the place where God's people dwell. It's Jerusalem for him, the temple. For us, it's the church. It's gathering with God's people. Bring me back to the church so I can have joy again. When you feel isolated and abandoned, you know what you almost always want to do? Avoid people. Especially introverts, right? But everyone who's depressed, usually one sign of depression is you want to be alone. You want to get back under the covers. You want to stay isolated. That's not going to bring back your joy. He says, I know how to bring back my joy. I'm going to, you're going to lead me through your truth back to the house of God where your people are and we can encourage one another in love. The church should be, and I hope that ours is being more and more a place of refuge and rest and healing and hope and love for people that are hurting, for people that are singing the blues, you could say. We're a safe place. We're a church that knows how to sing the blues and we know how to bring hope into the dark times. And what else is it, this temple, though? It's not just the people, it's the altar. This is what I want to say in closing. Then I will go to the altar of God, verse 4 of Psalm 43. Then I will go to the altar of God. I'm not there now. I'm far away from home. But I know that I'm going to get to the altar. What happened at the altar? Sacrifice was made for sin. You know, animals were killed in the Jerusalem altar. But then, of course, Jesus came on the altar of the cross. Hebrews 13 says we have a better altar than where animals were put. We have an altar where a man came down. A man who said on that altar, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer. He forsook his own son. He put his own son on the cross for us. He, he abandoned his son for that time on the cross and dumped upon him the sins of the world, wave after wave, crashing upon his head of our sin and our shame and our penalty. And it was for us. We know the reason that God abandoned Jesus that day, that dark hour, for us, so that we wouldn't be abandoned. So when we look to heaven and say, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? We must remember the altar. We must run to the altar. We must say, I will get to that altar, and that will clear everything up, because I know right there, there's a demonstration, a proof of God's love. Romans says, God proves His love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John says, you want a demonstration of the love of God? Here it is, that Christ gave His life as an atonement for your sin. If you ever want to think, God loves you, just run to the altar and look once again at the face of Jesus. He's your rock. He's your fortress and your deliverer. He will heal you and quench your thirst forever. 
Let's pray. God, from the darkness, we are looking for light. We're asking that you would break through the clouds and come give us light. Give us clarity for our souls. God, when we feel that there's no one else around but enemies, I pray that we remember that there is a church right here on the block, a phone call away, just down the street. We can text message them. We can Facebook message them. We can do all sorts of things to connect with each other. Tangible, visible demonstrations that you love us. And Lord, above all, we know that in the darkness and the pain, in the, the deep places you've given us the proof of everlasting love because Jesus died for us. And, and we see that he's also risen from the dead. We know he's alive. And so it strengthens our hope that we will live again too, that we will overcome these trials. We will live through them and beyond them. And we will reach that place of exceeding joy. And, and you are our exceeding joy, God. You are our truest happiness and our greatest blessing. So, Lord, let us fix our eyes on you now, Jesus Christ. As we come to the communion table, change us. Strengthen us. Make us more like you, who didn't just say, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You also are in the presence of God, your Father, sitting on the throne, ruling heaven and earth. And we know that we will rule and reign one day as well. Help us to have hope that that day will one day come soon. And we ask this in Jesus' name.